Hi, I'm Tony. I'm Patrick. And we'd like to welcome you to Cave to the Cross Apologetics. We are continuing our discussion of Nancy Piercy's book, Finding Truth, Five Principles for Unmasking Atheism, Secularism, and Other God Substitutes. That's right. right. We are truth finders in this system. <laughs> That's right. Or at least she's trying to teach us how to be truth finders, yeah. right? So we have uh, looked at uh, the first principle. She gives us these five principles, right? Uh, identify the idol. And now we're going through her chapter on the second principle, which is um, identify the reductionism, right? right? So she says that each one of these worldviews kind of uh, uh, makes an idol out of a portion of creation because they don't capture God, the true and the living God in their worldview. And so as a result of that, then they reduce, um, they make a reduction with regard to things that don't fit in their, um, you know, in their... In their uh, in their worldview, in other words, since they only view a portion of re- uh, reality as ultimate reality, they reduce all of reality into that particular portion. That's the reduction. There's things that she's trying to explain to us that are sticking out of what she calls the box. Right. right. Uh, so that's what's going on. Where most uh, most people cut it off, Christianity attempts to explain it all. Right. So that's right. the the benefit that the Christian worldview has over. Uh, the six uh, kind of uh, worldviews that we're going over uh, today, or at least two and maybe four others later. Right, right. Who knows? Right. So she wants to try to apply this reductionism to these various six worldviews. Um, and so the first two are, are uh, philosophical, she tells us, materialism and postmodernism, right? right? So the, again, the idea is uh, every other worldview does not capture God as the ultimate reality. They reduce, as a result of that, they reduce reality, right, to a particular idol, mm-hmm. right? And this, this reductionism, then, is what she's talking about. Right. And then the result of this reductionism, then, is what do you do with the rest of reality that's kind of sticking out of the box? So you mm-hmm. put, put it in the box here. What do you do with the rest of it, right? And so she's trying to uh, help us to see what that's all about, how they identify that, and that kind of stuff. Right. So the first one uh, she talks about here is uh, materialism, and she um, she's going to pick on um, uh, a couple of um, scientists and philosophers. Uh, uh, The the name of this section is Crick, nothing but a pack of neurons. Right, so that's a reference to Francis Crick. Um, he's known for cracking the DNA code, right? So she says, in recent years, a radically reductionist version of materialism has been advanced called elimitive materialism, right? It goes beyond the traditional materialist claim that material conditions determine the mental world to the more surprising claim, she tells us, that the mental world, notice, does not exist. So, you know, all of our thoughts, convictions, desires, intentions, perceptions, decisions are just fictions. Man, I was getting worried there because— Uh, yeah, that's, that's some of them were bad. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, so so you don't have to worry yeah, about them because right. they're illusions, well, right? They're illusions. They're produced by the underlying brain chemistry. That's all that's going on, with no causal impact, uh, of, you know, of our life. They're like foam whipped up by the sea or sparks created by a machine. Right. So right. it's not that your brain doesn't exist. It's the who you are, your your personality. Um, how you've uh, developed yourself, kind of, uh, you know, you might call it you know, the kind of the mental capacity exactly. of you, uh, yeah. is, right. is just is just 
neurons firing off. It's uh, the, these these you know flashes of lightning. It's you're only a product of what you remember from your memories, um, and and that's it. No, nothing nothing else. You are, you are just a pack of of brain goo. so it's just the physical stuff all the non-physical stuff you know our thoughts and convictions beliefs and desires uh they're just illusions right uh so she quotes uh nicholas humphrey here she says he he said our starting assumptions as scientists ought to be that on some level consciousness has to be an illusion Right. The reason is obvious. Has to be. Yeah. If nothing in the physical world can have the features of that uh, uh, that consciousness seems to have, then consciousness cannot exist as a thing in the physical world. Yeah. Boom. Can, so we just cut off yeah. consciousness. Right. Can we just raise the red flag here of presuppositions involved in this statement? <laughs> yeah. If right. nothing in the physical world can have the features that consciousness seem to have, then consciousness cannot exist in the physical world. Well. Oh, okay. Good. Good. <laughs> yeah. That right. was easy. Yeah. So it's an illusion, <laughs> right? So notice she says, then how is Humphrey's conscious of that fact yeah. <laughs> right? and why should we trust the thinking of scientists who tell us that there's no such thing as thinking right, <laughs> right? as one philosopher notes in limited materialism refutes itself since even an illusion is the presence of an experience within someone's consciousness yeah. a, l- a little bit of uh, Descartes uh, maybe swimming around in there yeah right? <laughs> she, uh, so she f- quotes uh, Francis Crick uh, with regard to this as well right He writes, you, your joys, your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, uh, your sense of identity and free will are, in fact, no more. There's the reduction, right? Than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. So playing off a line in Alice in Wonderland, he concludes, you're nothing but a pack of neurons. Francis Crick is going to be hired by Hallmark to write the next <laughs> Valentine's Christmas uh, That's right. Christmas cards. That's right. Nothing but a pack of, of neurons. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she quotes uh, Daniel Wigner of Harvard. Right? He argues that free will is an illusion and that all our actions are really the effects of unconscious physical causes. So it's physical causes that are, that are, that are controlling all of our actions, which means we don't have, you know, we're not able to make choices freely. Uh, which is kind of interesting. He uh, So in an interview, he says this, even though you know it's a trick, right? And here's the problem that, that you have when you start doing these things, right? right? In other words, wh- what do you do with then all of these thoughts and desires and, and you know, the, the illusion of free will, right? I mean, what do you do with it, right? He says uh, in an interview, he admits that free will is a very persistent illusion, right? It keeps coming back. Yet he treats it as nothing more than a magic, a magician's trick, right. right? Even though you know it's a trick, he says, you get fooled every time. The feelings just don't go away. You might think that when a theory is contradicted by persistent uh, experience, <laughs> she tells us, right. that uh, just don't go away. The persistent um, should count as evidence against the theory is what she tells us right and so she says we're going to look at this later on in principle three but you know wow yeah so so we have this box of of materialism all that there is 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 the material world nature that 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 that's it nothing more and so you you put you put that in the box you put humanity in the box all we are is is a, a bag of meat and some electricity firing off every once in a while and then it stops and that's it Oh, but except out of this box comes all your 
your free will <laughs> and, uh, you know, all, all the all the things that make you you. And so all that is is what he's trying to do is what we call cut it off. Yeah. What he's cutting off is all that and saying, snip, it's just an illusion. Right, right. It's and so you, you, you have this uh, uh, I, uh, this this kind of prevailing um, sense of self and mind and will and, uh, you know, uh, uh, ability to go against your your own nature, uh, you know, and, and not even like a big, big change. Like uh, I always get uh, vanilla ice cream on a Monday, but today's a Monday. I'm going for chocolate because <laughs> I am breaking out of my shell for oh, whatever reason. Oh, yeah, yeah. So all that is just an illusion. That's right. And so none it's of that. Just neurons firing. In order right. to fit it in the box, we have to to snip out all these all these things that we see. And again, the scientists <laughs> are are always trying to, or I should say, uh, uh, atheistic scientists tend to, to always want to point to Christians saying, "Oh, you're just you know uh, refusing to see what what the truth of you know whatever it might be because you have this uh, underlying fact of God." Well, here's their underlying effect in materialism. And so what they're doing is they're seeing a, a consistent uh, uh, piece of the puzzle that they don't want to put on the board. Right, right. Yeah, 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 that's so true. So she says, you know, most people, what distracts them is kind of, you know, what? You know, we don't <laughs> have any consciousness or person, uh, personal identity or free will. And so she asks, why would anyone come up with a theory so contrary to our normal experience? Well, here's the reasoning. She says it rests on a metaphor that's uh, popular among cognitive scientists. And what's that metaphor? That the brain is a computer. Oh, that explains it. Right. That's why they have to. So, for example, she says Harvard neuroscientist um, Steven Pinkert calls the human brain a complex machine for information processing or computation. That's all the brain is, right? It's a computer. It's a complex machine. It, uh, you know, it computes, it processes. And so there is no consciousness. There is no free will. It right. does what it's supposed to do, yeah. right? All, our <clears throat> most sophisticated computers, all they can do right now is add, subtract, multiply, divide, and any number of those. That's it. And that's how we get you know, binary code and uh, the cool pictures on our screen. And that's that's all we are. That's that's you and I are projecting out into the world an understanding of what we're seeing, and that's just uh, the, the, your your neurons telling you to do so. Right, right. That's so the so the question is then why are we conscious? Right. If if the and the answer is we're not. Right? <laughs> we ha we can't be. Right? Yeah. We, the, we, according to, yeah. to the materialistic worldview here that he's presenting, yeah. we can't be conscious. Right. Right. Uh, the idea that there is an inner self that unifies our thoughts and, and experiences, unfortunately, is just an illusion. Well right? And in Pinker's words, he says there's considerable evidence that the unified self is a fiction. Right. And so where would such a fiction come from? The theory claims that natural selection has programmed it into our genes because it enables us to predict and control our environment more easily. Right. <laughs> so that's where the fiction comes from. So, you know, here's an example. Uh, we can more easily predict that Sally will go to the refrigerator if we know that she wants to dr uh, a drink and thinks a carton of milk is in the refrigerator. Right. So yeah. a want, a yeah. desire. Yeah. And a, a thinking. A of, thinking. Yeah. Of, yeah. of pr projecting that, right, a, a des right. uh, end goal desire. Of course, those things don't exist. Right. <laughs> right. In reality, yeah. however, the theory says the internal states like wanting and thinking that kind of stuff, they don't exist. Uh, ordinary language is just a convenient shorthand 
that we use because an accurate account invoking the laws of physics that govern the neurons firing would be so complex, right? And so we we just use thinking and uh, wanting, desiring, that kind of stuff. It's just a shorthand for all these complicated things that are happening in our brain. Right. Sorry, Sally. You you really don't want the milk. You you can't want anything. I mean, this would take economics completely out of the game. (laughs) uh, uh, Humans desire to want things and a a lack of resources to meet the goal of those wants. That's what economics essentially is. That's Mm -hmm. what it boils down to. Mm -hmm. Uh, Robert Murphy would uh, be the interview that I would point you back to (laughs) just to plug ourselves. Um, And so... Um, especially the Austrian uh, view of economics would would highly uh, uh, point away from from this type of uh, outcome. Yeah, yeah. And so notice she's quoted several folks here just to help us to see that this is really what people believe. Yeah, th- we, right? we're not making strawman arguments. Yeah. Just as as Dr. Stokes would would quote uh, yeah. uh, pr- prevailing scientists and philosophers in in, in his book, uh, uh, Professor Piercy is is doing the same thing here. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a really good point. Yeah. All right, so we have to eliminate. Um, we have to give eliminative materialism credit for utter, utterly being utterly logical. There yeah, I mean, clearly, if those things don't exist, then you have to say they don't exist, right? right? right. So that's the logical conclusion, and so they say, "Yep, they don't exist." Right. It's all mm-hmm. illusion. Yeah. Sorry that that's just uh, helps you with uh, uh, continuing on this existence, right. uh, which you don't really have a choice in anyway. So <laughs> I don't know what that means. Uh, having made an idol of matter, it rejects anything beyond the material realm. Uh, yet not all materialists are happy with this outcome. Gee, I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they point to the obvious fact that we are conscious beings. Somehow, they say, consciousness must emerge from matter. This fuse is called emergentism. So if you have something like uh, water, uh, you have wetness. Uh, water is wet. It's uh, it's can be cold. It can be warm. It uh, freezes at one hundred or at zero boils at a hundred. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It, yeah, it has all these these properties, and so um, th- there's there's nothing in it that kind of tells water must be wet. It's just a byproduct of of being yeah, water. It's, it's it, yeah. So it's it's the arrangement of two gases, right? Hydrogen and oxygen right. in a particular way, and wetness kind of emerges mm-hmm. out of that arrangement, right? right? Yeah. So uh, the property of something can affect the thing it is a part of, right? All, after all, mental states are not at all like physical states. A physical object like a rose may be red, may be prickly, but your thought about the rose is neither red nor prickly. Right. Physical so, objects. So here she's given us some counterexamples yeah. to show that this idea of emergentism doesn't really work. Right. right? Yeah. Physical objects are public. They can be observed by other people, but mental states, such as the feelings of pain or joy, are private. Uh, they cannot be directly observed by anyone. And so uh, this was uh, – uh, who was the the atheist? Um, uh, he's the one that tried to say well-being was the was – the, um, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Was was is the it, is, explanation. Is it Harris? Yeah, it Harris? Harris. yeah, Sam Harris. Sam, Sam Harris would say, well, you know, you just measure – uh, you know, if, if you're feeling pain in this mental state and then you weren't feeling it in this this mental state, then that's a, an objective standard. So uh, th- that would be an attempt to kind of get away around it. Hmm. Um, we see uh, we explain physical states by uh, invoking a general causal law, as in science, 
but we explain mental states by invoking personal intentions, desires, choices. Right. So notice the the explanation of these two different things, right? right are one. different. Right. Yeah, right? So, yeah, she's she's making the case here that we really have two different things, right. not just one thing. Right. And, and the, right. the second one isn't just this illusion. Right. Uh, a, a good idea of that being we all experience it and, and, and you know— uh, an attempt to be uh, Mr. Spock from Star Trek that doesn't really work, and it didn't even work for, for Vulcans either. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, mental states are always about about something. So it's directed towards an object. You think about a person, you worry about a problem, but physical objects are not about anything. They just are. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I worry about... Uh, my my wife uh, getting my 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 favorite candy at the store. Right. Uh, but then there's also my wife. Those yeah. are two different two different. So things. so mental states has this aboutness property. So the fancy name for that is intentionality. That's the fancy name for yeah, that. And the, the keyword <laughs> at the bottom of the screen right now. Right. I'll define it later. Don't worry. <laughs> and that's the idea that mental states are about something. The aboutness of mental states. The aboutness right? of something. <laughs> and, and obviously, physical objects aren't about anything. Right. Right. They, they, just, they just yeah. They yeah. Just uh, kind of a, a brute fact. <laughs> it appears that consciousness and matter differ in kind, quantitatively, not merely in degree. Quali- uh, I'm sorry, qualitatively, not merely in degree, quantitatively. Hmm. Uh, Dar- Darwinian evolution implies that humans emerge through uh, the blind operation of natural forces. It's it is mysterious how such forces could generate something non-physical. Hmm. Right, and that was uh, Evan Evan Fails, a philosopher. Philosopher Colin McGinn treats it akin to a miracle. We do not know how consciousness might have arisen by natural processes from antecedently existing material things. One is tempted, however reluctantly, to turn to divine assistance. It would take a, a supernatural magician to extract consciousness from matter. But we can't have that, so never mind. And we just don't know how it is. Yeah. It's a mystery. We'll explain it somewhere down the line, which I believe is philosophy of the gaps. Yeah. That's philosophy of the gaps. That's right. right there. That's right. Boo. <laughs> we can't have that explanation. Uh, philosopher Mark Badeau says that the idea of emergence is uncomfortably like magic. Poof! Uh, there it is, yeah. right? There's the there's the consciousness. Right. Just, and, and it exists. And, it and, came uh, into existence. It, it's it's not something that you get at age three. That's kind right. of bestowed on you. It's you know it's not like going through puberty. You you have you have it. Every child has a personality. It has desires, wants. Uh, you know, it, it's it's ingrained in you. It's conscious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all that. And so, trying to cut that off devalues the person. And so that's mm. what uh, mm. we're, uh, she's trying to point out here. Yeah. yeah. In the words of philosopher Gallens Strawson, the denial of consciousness is surely the strangest thing that has ever happened uh, in the history of the whole. Uh, in the whole history of human thought, it shows that the power of human credulity is unlimited. The capacity of human minds to be gripped by theory, by faith, is truly unbounded. It reveals the deepest irrationality of the human mind. So the very <laughs> fact that it's denied shows the truth of it. So. Yeah, yeah, wow. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, you have uh, the, this kind of faith uh, that, that um, uh, it, uh, a limited material is, is a faith, mm-hmm. one that is deeply irrational. Yeah. Um, after, uh, the, the goal of philosophy is to explain the facts of experience, not to deny them, and that's what we see happening here. Right. Anything less is ducking the issue. Right. The problem with the reductionism is that instead of explaining things, it tries to explain them away. Hmm. And so uh, at least uh, certain um, uh, elements of materialism attempt to do that, and so uh, you can answer those as well. But here, the, the – uh, what is it? The, 
uh, reductionist, uh, the eliminative materialism mm -hmm. tends to do the opposite of what um, good science claims to be doing. Uh, it's a logically coherent system, but it contradicts human experience. Most of what makes life worth living, though, consists of experiences, love, happiness, fulfillment, moral ideas, a sense of purpose, and so on. These are the things that we see. These are the things that that uh, drive humanity and, and uh, musicians write about and uh, poets and artists and uh, people that want to pass on more than um, just their genes to children, the ideals and things like democracy and writing books, all those things have a basis in this non-material uh, thing of, of, of wanting to kind of uh, improve or inspire or do, do something, whatever, whatever that person is holding, uh, they're not just thinking of must continue the species, must procreate, they're done, uh, now I can die, uh, whatever that means, uh, or get the most amount of stuff because in the end, uh, whoever has the most amount wins. That's right. right. That's what Mario told me. <laughs> uh, if, uh, what we see when uh, people actually hold these uh, views is a reduction of the human person and not just harmless speculation, mm, mm. idle amusements for philosophers. Right. What the dominant classes uh, hold as true tends to, sh to sh shape social and political practice. Right. If the elite holds a materialism that reduces humans to computers, they will treat people like computers. Uh, 1984 is a perfect example <laughs> of this. You know, you, you have the proles. Uh, they're there to prop up the, the upper class and the party because, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to get a full range of 1984, <laughs> but it's such a good book yeah. uh, that, that uh, it seems to um, uh, try and computerize people so so much so that um, th they view uh, uh, 2 plus 2 equals 5 as a, a possible truth claim, and, and you thinking that it's not is you being hateful towards the collective as a whole, stuff like that. <laughs> So you, you want to treat computers where you can program them. You want to treat people like you can program them mm -hmm. and make them think irrational thoughts if, if that's so your goal. And so uh, people will be judged solely on how well they perform their assigned function, and when they stop functioning, they will be tossed in the garbage heap with the other electronic trash, a bag of meat in the ground, feeding the worms because the worms are helpful because they're alive. Yeah. <laughs> Who they're helpful to or what, what what's the purpose of all, uh, there is none. Stop asking those questions, ex yeah. unless if it leads to survivability. Uh, but then you have to cut off all your desires to want to, to <laughs> understand that. So that's kind of the critique here, what reductionism does in a materialistic worldview, right? right? That's, so she's kind of looked at this, and it cuts out all our consciousness, all of our, all of our uh, free will, right? Yeah. All of the really things. Really simplifies things. Yeah, you know? yeah, all we're talking yeah. about is just the stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's five senses I, yeah. I, I only have to worry about. Right. So next she wants to move to uh, postmodernism, right? Uh, so this is the – so she says in a typical university – uh, this radical form of reductionism is likely held by the science department, right? right? The materialism, does, right? Yeah. Where the expectation is uh, that most professors are, you know, materialists. Yeah. She says, if you walk across the campus to the Arts and Humanities building, however, <laughs> there you'll find that most professors don't embrace, embrace materialism; they embrace postmodernism. Yeah. Right? Well, I will say, and 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 I, I, reading reading her book, and I, I forget when when it was published. Uh, she's kind of ahead of her time of speaking against what's happening uh, 2015. So 2015, she's talking about things like 
um, speech code uh, um, laws in campuses, uh, th things like uh, kind of critical race theory. Um, and now we're seeing that leach into even mm -hmm. the sciences and saying things mm -hmm. like uh, Western science is an oppression of colonialism from the white man. And so we need to rethink how, you know, well, people we, from yeah, different sections Not only that, do. We, we're seeing it leach into popular culture. Well, that too. Right? Yeah, that too. <laughs> you but know. you would think that, oh, the stoic scientists who are behind the lab coats, they wouldn't, they wouldn't even be caught dead. There, there's a wall bifurcating the the, the crazy, crazy hippie yeah. psychologist that's you know all, all you want to do is have sex with your mother and <laughs> and whatever else that, that you can come up with to explain human behavior but no science is this wall that that you know is impenetrable well unfortunately people are getting over the wall under the wall yeah. through the wow. wall yeah there is no wall. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah. The wall has been destroyed. She says, in, in many ways, these two worldviews are diametrically opposed, yeah, right? So. Yet both of them lead to <laughs> uh, a dehumanizing reductionism. Right? Mm -hmm. So they both lead to the same thing. For many people, the term postmodernism seems like it's kind of arcane and uh, that sort of thing. But she, she wants to give us at least a, a, a snippet of the history of, of this particular concept. So she says its roots uh, reach back to the Romantic movement uh, that we briefly touched on in uh, Principle One. One of the heroes of the Romantic movement, uh, Schopenhauer, uh, said, materialism is the philosophy of the subject who forgets to take account of himself, <laughs> right? Um, that is, a materialist looks outside at the physical world, right, as though that, uh, that, uh, that were the sole reality and forgets to look inward at the self. So that's that's Schopenhauer's kind of uh, characterization of materialism. Right. Yet the inner world of consciousness is equally part of the reality that uh, worldviews are required to explain. So you have to explain both the outward and the inward. And he's suggesting that materialism is just looking outward and therefore cuts off the inward. Mm -hmm. Right. Rom the romantics. Romantics were um, not interested in recovering only the individual mind, however. They were enamored by Kant's idea of the uh, transcendental ego, right, or the universal mind yeah. with its God-like powers to create uh, the world experience. So Kant argued that, you know, we really create much of what we uh, experience in the world, right, causality, all kinds of things we, we create, right? And so they, they, want, they wanted that as well. They wanted us to do that, uh, sure. uh, to be able to do that. So for many, it was a springboard to pantheism. Ian Barber, the theologian, says that the romantics, uh, for the romantics, God is not the external creator of an impersonal machine, but a spirit pervading nature. Right. So the there you go. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> the romantics wanted to overthrow the enlightenment image of the universe as a vast machine. Right. That's kind of, you know. Calculating yeah. a way or whatever, and replace it. In, yeah. Yeah. Replace it with an organic image. The universe is an organism, right? So, in this vision, it explains uh, random: the world was no machine, but was alive, and God was not its creator so much as its soul or its life, right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, she suggested this is what we saw earlier as idealism, right? right? So, also, the Romantics wanted to knock down the idol of materialism. Uh, so they uh, uh, so they propped up the idol of idealism, right? And so they exchange one reductionistic view <laughs> for another, right? right is is what uh, is what we have. And so she says each of these two streams grew. That is romanticism and enlightenment 
uh, grew into um, a richly interconnected network of philosophies, which we call the analytic and the continental traditions. So the materialistic view came uh, kind of morphed out of the Enlightenment, the idea that reason can, you know, uh, give us all the answers, right? And the um, and so um, and so morphed into the philosophical tradition of analytic philosophy, and the um, the uh, postmodern view came out of Romanticism, and morphed into the philosophical idea of the continental tradition. So when you study philosophy uh, in school now especially at the graduate level. You're, you're either focusing in on analytic philosophy and logic and all that kind of stuff, right. or you're focusing in on continental tradition of philosophy. Yeah. And so you're talking about some of these folks. The mind, the about, soul, God. You know, yeah, yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah, right? yeah so, so uh, she has a, a really good uh, kind of breakdown here is that materialism has this box of things, mm. and things is the only thing in there. Yeah. You, you know, you have, the, you have your, your Christmas ornaments and, you know, the lights and the tree. That, that's all the things in that box. And then the romanticists, <laughs> the, the postmodernist, wants a box of the mind. So the, 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 the spirit of Christmas, the, uh, the, the good feelings that uh, come as a result of giving, mm. um, you know, the, all, the, all the, the joy that, that comes in. So uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't care about the, the box of things and the box of things. Uh, the, the materialists don't care about the, the box of non-things. Yeah. So so um, she says worldviews are not scatter shots of disconnected ideas. They tend to cluster in groups called uh, that's often called family resemblances. Right. This is um, this is a term that's often used. So when uh, we learn each family's connecting things, it will be easier to identify its form of reductionism. Okay. So, you know, you look at the overall family and uh, you understand what's going on, and so you can kind of peg each one of these things based on its family resemblance, right? <laughs> right. <clears throat> that came from uh, Wittgenstein, who was a early 20th century philosopher. All right. So then what it does is it tries to reach out for conceptual tools. It's trying to, it, it, it knows what it wants, now it's trying to find out how to get there kind of deal. And so what it did is uh, looked to revitalize this Neoplatonism, a version of idealism with roots in the third century, um, uh, took uh, uh, bits and pieces of, of, of Plato's thoughts from the Greek schools and spiced it up with uh, Eastern pantheism. Uh, from the diverse sources, Neoplatonism crafted a big tent worldview. You might think of it as the New Age movement. That's mm. kind of kind of mm. where it comes from. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, I'm sure you uh, look through of crystals and um, auras and and all those things where it's talking about uh, how your aura affects your your digestion or. Um, how holding this crystal will help you uh, find find love, you know that that, that type of of of, um, wow. of magic. Yeah, <laughs> meddling between the two yeah. the, oh, the two I things is, Sorry. is is yeah. having something like crystals, saying uh, here here are the the physical uh, kind of aspect of of holding the crystal, and it imbues your body through yeah. with with. Yeah, so it represents something else, right? right? That kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so. Uh, <laughs> 
like a, a fountain cascading down. There are multiple levels. One uh, emanated uh, descending series that flow down through several levels for spiritual entities to human beings, then to uh, sentient creatures like animals, living plants, uh, living things like plants, um, e even things like water, um, uh, t taking photos of, of still shots of water and, and getting um, uh, emotions from water. And, and mm. you could freeze, wow. freeze water and you have an emotion of negative energy in there. And, <laughs> and I mean, it was, uh, it was done with plants, too. Um, so kind of like this uh, 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 Gaia th theory is, is um, uh, embedded in here if you ever kind of had the, the Final Fantasy type stuff yeah, is, yeah. Is, uh, is, comes from here. Yeah. So when attracted uh, the romanticist to Neoplatonism was the idea that nature is permeated by soul or spirit. For idealists, uh, uh, says uh, Eagleton, the, abs uh, the absolute, capital A, served as a form of secularized divinity. That was not a personal God who thinks, feels, wills, and acts. It was a non-personal spiritual essence or substance, mm. the mm. soul of the whole of the eternal one. Wow. Right. And so what she says next is then that Hegel takes this Neoplatonism idea, right? And he runs with it. Yeah. He gives it a little <laughs> twist, right, and adds the concept of historical development or evolution, right? Until, you know, he says, uh, until she says, uh, until then, the ladder of life had been static. It was a fixed list of or an inventory of the things that existed in the universe. But with Hegel, the ladder became uh, dynamic, right? And so to picture the change, you might think, she says, of a ladder tilting over to become an escalator <laughs> with the entire universe progressing upward through a series of stages. And, of course, he called his pantheistic deity the absolute spirit or the universal mind, right? right? And, be, and uh, because it was the soul of the world, it was said to evolve along with the world. Right. So we're getting way out there. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, uh, we'll, we'll cover it a little bit, but it, it's kind of like a touchstone of... of uh, you know, um, it, it's it's okay to uh, own people as long as you don't beat them to death, and th and that's fine for it right now. And then as it progresses along, it too is changing, developing somehow. And then at some point, uh, the the spiritual nature of man says, "No, owning people is wrong, straight out," and so on and so forth. And so uh, we'll we'll get into that. More yeah, more. yeah. So so basically, what Hegel did was he he applied the concept of evolution not to biology but to the world right. of ideas. Yeah. Right. So ideas are evolving. This you know this soul, this ultimate soul, this absolute spirit, uh, universal mind is evolving along with everything else. Right. That's kind of his kind of addition yeah. onto this neoplatonism advancing towards a, a final perfect state and so yeah you you do see this too in in some like science fiction books is is uh, humanity uh, improves itself so much so that it becomes uh, incorporeal and becomes just pure energy and with it it can you know live transcendent in this kind of right perfect state so um at least in the sci-fi that I read sometimes. <laughs> yes. So we have this progression is what we're saying. And so what she says here is that Hegel's philosophy is a form of historicism. This is the doctrine that all ideas are products of historical forces, um, that uh, what is true, with quotes there, at one stage of history will give way to a higher truth at the next stage, right? And so we're, you know, again, we're looking at the background here of postmodernism, the ideas here. In essence, Hegel surveyed all the conflicting philosophies and worldviews, all the competing religious claims, all the warring camps and cultures, and proposed to overcome the strife by treating each one as a partial and relative truth in the upward progression of the mind, the evolution of consciousness, mm -hmm. right? So what is the logical flaw in historicism, she says? 
Well, it's self-refuting, right? right? The claim that every idea is partial and a relative truth must include its own claim, right? right? Like every other evolving idea, it is relative to its own moment in history and therefore not true in any trans-historical sense, right? It doesn't go any further than uh, Hegel's time. Sorry, Hegel, your own idea kind of refutes what you're trying to say. Yeah, even within concepts like philosophy of law, you have this kind of understanding of there's this overarching capital L law that exists out there. And we as, as, as individuals, as um, uh, uh, political agents are trying to always find what the law is and how it makes sense and how it, how it uh, 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 relates to us at this time in this place. And then it changes. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it must change because uh, humanity changes and it's a product of its time. So, uh, you know, the, the law wasn't wrong back then. It just we just changed it. Yeah. And so that, that at least especially in, in constitutional law, you have uh, those who are kind of of the um, back to the sources. Uh, what, what did what did the words mean for those people at those time? And then you have the people that just kind of believe in this transitory just. You know, it must change with the time, and so the words that we read, we don't have to go back and rewrite. We just uh, interpret it based on where we're at today, and mm. and because we are the, the those who reach out and touch the law, somehow, uh, you know, esoterically, um, you know, th- then then people have to believe us, and right, right. we we get into the the. the the great system that we have today. And so she says, how does Hegel then avoid this devastating conclusion? Well, he tacitly (laughs) exempts himself, right? (laughs) He wrote as though he alone was mysteriously able to rise above the evolutionary process, as though he alone was capable of objective, timeless, uh, complete view of the entire historical process. Just he could see he was the guy who was on the mountain, right? Uh, Again, wanting to put everything in the box. And what, what jumped out of the box? Hegel. Yeah. He just hopped out. He's like, that was good. I've got it all packed down. I just need to exit. And yeah, you're all good. That's right. So <laughs> she says, of course, uh, by making an exception for himself, Hegel implies that there was one thing that his system did not cover, namely his own thinking. And as you mentioned, he then, his thinking is. <laughs> jumps out of the box, well, right? And um, in this way, he introduced a logical inconsistency in the system. And uh, so we'll talk, she says, uh, we'll talk about this issue of worldviews and, you know, committing these logical inconsistencies in principle number four. So I guess we'll have to wait to to, to uh, get into that a little All right. Bit. That's all right. <laughs> so do we want to end here and then pick this up uh, oh, next time? Yeah. I mean, we, we are going to get more into the, uh, Specifically the issues of, of postmodernism, of post-modernism but yeah. we're also going to cover um, uh, Islam and Buddhism and communism and Nazism. Yeah. So it's not Buddhism. It's, uh, it's Islam and Hinduism? Uh, pantheism. Oh, pantheism. pantheism. Yeah. 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 As, as embodied by other religions yeah. Yeah, that are pantheistic. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, again, we break these things down so that you can go back over and into smaller clips um, uh, that get published daily. And so uh, feel free if something uh, didn't jive right with you, uh, go over it again. We appreciate for those who even disagree with us to watch our stuff and at least interact with that um, and not just read the uh, the, the titles that uh, YouTube makes us uh, uh, stay in characters for. So, um, uh, again, thanks for watching us, and uh, we'll hopefully have you back next time to finish up our chapter. See you next time.